0: Those final words that Lynette said after she read the scripture brings much peace and hope to my heart. For this is the word of God. It's the word of God that transforms us. It's the word of God that saved us. It's the word of God that keeps us. And it's the word of God that's going to ground us today. Let's pray. God, thank you for your life-giving, holy, and abiding word. Thank you that uh, it is your words that bring life. And I pray this morning that, um, that your words from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, your inspired words spoken through this author, God would, um, would free our consciences, would free us from any guilt That we're carrying. And I pray, God, that you would enable us to walk in freedom, in the freedom of our salvation. And God, I pray for anybody here today that is um, not been forgiven of the guilt of their sin. They are still striving to sacrifice and do better. In order to earn favor with you, God, I pray that today would be a day of surrender, and that you'd bring forgiveness for all who ask. We love you, and we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus, and God's people said. Amen. So we are continuing in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, as Lynette, Lynette just read. And um, the author is just hammering on us that the Old Testament, the Old, the old Covenant is a shadow. It's a copy of better things to come, that the, the, um, the Levitical priests, the tabernacle, the sacrifices were all good, but they weren't efficacious. They couldn't bring salvation. They held back, um, held back the wrath of God for a short period of time, but they pointed to the true sacrifice, the true high priest, the true tabernacle, the one true efficacious sacrifice through the body of Jesus Christ. And two weeks ago, Stephen uh, taught through the first part of chapter 9, and last week, Chad taught through the end of chapter 9, and both of those had a word in common, It would talked about our conscience. And the direction that I thought I was going to go on this sermon um, on Tuesday, Wednesday, when I met with the guys, is a complete different direction than where the Lord led me yesterday, quite frankly. And um, I've titled the sermon, I Will Remember No More. I will remember no more. Because if you are uh, caught up in guilt, in a guilty conscience, it's because you are not believing or remembering that he remembers no more. You know, every once in a while, I am overcome and caught up in deep regret over past sins and mistakes. And there's so many things that I wish I would have done differently in life. So many mistakes, so many uh, do-overs I wish I could have. Now, I trust in God's sovereignty. He uses my sin. He uses your sin. He redeems and uses our mistakes to sanctify us and mold us into the image of Jesus. Most of my mistakes were made in the context of marriage and in the context of parenting. I will often say that anything good in my adult children's life is all of God's grace. And I say that because I believe it, but I also say that because there's been some lingering um, guilt and shame and um, and a conscience that uh, wishes I could do things differently. So this grace of God in my kid's life is is also um, uh, bracketed by regret and lingering guilt that I have. We were with one, of my, with one of my sons recently, and he said, Dad, it seems like you and Mom have some regrets in parenting, because we'll, always, we'll tease oftentimes with our kids. we we'll go, you know what, like if I raised you, buddy, as a single parent, you'd probably be in jail, and if your mom raised you as a single parent, you'd probably be homeless, and you know, like we, like the two of us, like coming together, did something right. But he said, Dad, it seems like you and Mom have regrets in your parenting, and he said this. He says, I want you to know, Dad, that you did a great job. That we saw you love Jesus. We saw you love one another. And we saw you love us. We saw you ask for forgiveness. And I know that you just did the best that you could. You were great parents. And there's nothing that I'm holding against you. I couldn't hold back the tears, to hear the words that there's nothing that I hold against you, knowing that I did so much wrong, just was a salve to my heart, and it relieved my guilty conscience in some way. Can you relate at any level to lingering regret or guilt in any aspect of your life? I'm convinced that Christians, mature Christians, can live their lives with an almost constant low level sense of guilt for past sins and decisions. How do we feel guilty? Let me count some of the ways. You stole something, you told a little lie, you got angry. You gossiped. You had a complaining spirit. You had sex outside of marriage. And maybe never even married that person. You had an abortion. You had an affair. You got divorced. You got pregnant out of wedlock. You've been watching pornography. You know that you live a double life. And you know that you just give lip service to building God's kingdom and care more about your own kingdom. You see, our past, including our five-minute-ago past, could have a cumulative effect where even the most mature Christian can feel like he or she is disappointing God. That somehow we need to, because we've disappointed God, that we've, we've sinned, that we need to somehow atone for our past mistakes by being better parents. By giving more, by serving more, by praying more, by just doing more and giving better efforts to please God. Here's the tricky part, though. We should feel guilty sometimes. Because sometimes, what? We're guilty. Complacency as Christians is a real danger, especially here in America. So there's two great dangers with constant guilt. We either feel like constant failures, or we learn to ignore our conscience. And neither one of those brings freedom. Today, today we're going to talk mostly about uh, the constant, low-grade uh, guilt that our consciences have that keep us from living the joyful life in Christ that brings freedom. Freedom. God didn't redeem us through the blood of His Son so that we might walk around with our head down having heavy, joyless hearts and being weighed down by regrets of the past. When we sin, and we will sin, He tells us what He has done with our sin and how we can free ourselves from a guilty conscience. Amazingly, the Apostle Paul lived in this space. He said at one point in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul said, I'm not aware of anything against myself. But he was quick to add, I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. It seems sure that Paul went to sleep at night with a clean conscience. It wasn't that he didn't sin, but he he went to bed with a clean or a clear conscience. He didn't go to bed with a guilty conscience. So why do so many Christians feel guilty all the time? And I would submit to you that that we don't um, understand or remember or believe in what Christ accomplished on the cross and how he relates to us even when we sin. Instead of looking back to the cross and looking forward to our sure hope of heaven, we let wouldas and shouldas and couldas spin around in our minds. I did this in the shower this morning. As I was thinking about this, I'm, I'm in the shower, and I just had this, this sense of regret come over me as a result of a conversation that I had with a brother on Tuesday. Wednesday. And I got angry at this brother. I sinned against this brother. Yet I made it right with him afterwards, and I confessed it to the Lord. So why did I have this this, this spinning around in my head about this this guilty conscience? I was guilty, but I also confessed it to him and I confessed it to the Lord. So my prayer for you today, my prayer for me today is that we would be free to pursue pursue the will of God in response to what he's done and not try to make up for what you have sinfully done in the past, I pray that you that this this passage would give you an increasing want to please God, an increasing um, uh, and a decreasing have to please God. Here is the emphasis of today's passage. You are guilty of sin, but you need not live with a guilty conscience, because God has forgiven you. He remembers your sins no more. And you have been set apart as his prized possession, therefore strive to sin no more. Let me say it again. You are guilty of sin, but you need not live with a guilty conscience, because God has forgiven you. He remembers your sins no more, and you have been set apart as his prized possession, therefore strive to sin no more. Verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The writer of Hebrews is insistent and is encouraging the Jewish believers to not go back to the old covenant rituals. And it's not just for them. It's for us. Because oftentimes when we sin, we want to go back and try to do something to please God. Now don't get me wrong we're to live our lives in pleasing God but not to please him to try to somehow atone for our sins or to make up for what the wrong that we did. These Old Testament sacrifices were good and they served as a temporary placeholder for the real thing but they were a shadow of the true high priest Jesus Christ and his once and for all sacrifice. And we're told that these sacrifices could not perfect those who drew near. The, sacrifice of, the uh, sacrifice of blood, of the blood of bulls and goats, continually could never bring forgiveness for the for the guilt and penalty of sin. Verses two through four. Otherwise, if it did. They would have ceased being offered. They would not have to be offered uh, day in and day out, year in and year out, since worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. Consciousness of sins means have a guilty conscience. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. If the the sacrifices were efficacious, if they were effective in taking away sin, um, then the worshipers would not have any guilt of sin or consciousness of sin. In other words, if their sin was removed, they would have continually... They wouldn't, have, they wouldn't continually have a guilty conscience that needed to atone for their sins by continual sacrifice. You see, these sacrifices were a constant reminder that their sin remained because the blood of animals could not cleanse them. Our conscience, your conscience, we all have a conscience. Every human being has a conscience, whether you are in Christ or outside of Christ. Our conscience is a sense of right and wrong. And for the Christian, our God-given conscience is developed and informed by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. In chapter 9, verse 9, the author of Hebrews wrote, the law could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Not only can the law of God not perfect the conscience of the worshiper, the law of God brings condemnation to those who try to obey it. Yet continually fall. Stephen gave us a helpful quote on that on this passage on the on the, this passage in chapter nine, verse nine, a couple of weeks ago. He said, "The conscience is a divinely given warning device that reacts to sin and produces accusation. The conscience is a divinely given warning device that reacts to sin and produces accusation." Stephen went on to say that we have a guilty conscience when we bury our sin, rather than remember this, burn our sin. It was really, it was a great, really a great quote. Um, when we bury our sin, it means that we're we're trying to make up for it somehow. We're trying to do better and be better. And the only way to burn our sin, or the is to uh, the only way to get a clean conscience. Excuse me, is to burn our sin, is to bring it to the cross of Christ, so it can be taken care of. In chapter nine, fourteen, last week, uh, Chad read, Jesus' sacrifice purified our conscience from dead works, trying to atone for our sins, trying to do better and more to serve the living God. Jesus purified our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see, Jesus' sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins gave us a pure conscience so that we no longer bring our sacrifices to God in order to appease His wrath and relieve our conscience. We're free to serve Him as a result of our forgiveness. This is burning our past sins and mistakes. And I'll say it again. The Christian conscience must be informed by the Word of God. And it must be pricked by the Holy Spirit. And I might say this, a guilty conscience in the short term is a gift from God. It's It's a gift from the Lord as it's meant to lead us to repentance For the forgiveness of our sins that Jesus purchased on the cross, not not in the way of not a guilty conscience in the way that the Catholics have a guilty conscience, Um, and I can say that I grew up in that church. And there are in fact fact, every other religion. I would challenge you to think of a religion that doesn't say um, uh, obey, and then be accepted. Christianity is the only religion, if I might, that says that you are fully accepted, therefore what? Obey. In coming to church, either Stephen or Chad said this, coming to church, praying more, um, giving more, serving more isn't going to relieve a guilty conscience. Trying to be a better parent isn't going to relieve a guilty conscience for the mistakes that you made in the past. Now, it's good to try harder to be a better parent, to love your bride more, but it's not going to relieve a guilty conscience. You can have a clean conscience... Which is the opposite of a guilty conscience, not because you never sin, but because you quickly go to the Lord when you know that you have sinned, and then you rest in his forgiveness and the truth of Romans eight nine, that there is now no condemnation for what? Those who are in Christ Jesus. The Apostle John says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This doesn't mean that if you are a Christian and you don't confess your sin to God that you're not forgiven. But what it means is is that when you know you are guilty of sin and you know you're forgiven and you're still carrying around a, a clean conscience, you're not really believing that you're forgiven that you need to go back to the cross and remember that you've been completely forgiven, and you've been completely cleansed of all past, present, and future sin. You see, we're not, we're not meant to feel borderline miserable all the time. We're meant to live in the joy of our salvation. So when we sin, and you're going to sin, we confess it to the Lord and the offended party, we get cleansed, and we move on. Um, we have a um, a discipleship uh, program that is kind of in the water of this church. that's called Call to Obedience. And many of you have gone through it. And it's just—it's a man-made curriculum that is just saturated with God's Word. And it is, it is used to help set people free from past sins, their own past sins, against others and the sins of past sins of others against them. And one of the first exercises we do with their primary relationships in a marriage is I said, we say, make a list of the way that you have sinned against your spouse. That's the way we start. Because, because we're all carrying around this low-level guilt. And when I'm carrying around low-level guilt in the way that I've sinned against Nancy, it does, it actually, by burying that. And not acknowledging that, it doesn't free me up to love her in the way that God has designed her to be loved. So one of the primary ways that we we unencumber a guilty conscience and to operate with a clear conscience is to clear it. And the way that we clear a conscience is not by burying it, but it's going to the cross and going to the offended person and confessing it. Not with an excuse, but by saying, honey, uh, I want to use honey, I'll go to, to the dude that I offended on Wednesday, like, brother, like, I know that by me raising my voice and me speaking down to you, it made you feel like a fool. Rather than being reminded that you're an image bearer, would you forgive me? praise be to God, he says yes. Whether he says yes or no, it's, it's not on me. What's on me is to confess. When you bury your sin and you don't confess it, you're going to be walking in the shame of sin and not in the joy of Christ. And therefore not experiencing his best. The law and all of its rules cannot take away the guilt of sin because it couldn't remove sin and its effects from our body our mind and our soul. But here's the beauty coming into verses 5-10. through 10, The triune God of heaven has been aware of this from the very beginning. And he says in verse 5 Consequently or therefore When Christ came into the world, we have a guilty conscience. The blood of bulls and goats cannot clear the conscience. Therefore, consequently, when Christ came into the world, what does that remind you of? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus fulfilled the law by coming into the world to enter our mess, the mess of sinful humanity, in order to make the perfect and final sacrifice. He made this perfect offering in accordance to the will of God to get something. He did it to get something. He did it to honor somebody, and he did it to get something. He did it to honor the the will of the Father, and he did it to get you and me. He created us to be in relationship with Him. He made this perfect offering in accordance to the will of God. Not because He had to, but because He wanted to. So consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, what He's going to say here are the pre-incarnate words of of Christ to the Father. And he's quoting David's words from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 7. Uh, excuse me, verse, uh, verses 6 through 8. So let me read Hebrews chapter 10, 5 through 6. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, this is Jesus talking to the Father, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Jesus is quoting these words from David a thousand years earlier in Psalm 46 through 8. However, David's words in Psalm 40 were just a little bit different. So I want to I contrast the two. Psalm 40. And by the way, you, you see something different up here? Um, we are no longer going to be showing the, uh, the words of the, um, of the particular section of Scripture that we're teaching. Uh, today, Hebrews 10, 1 through 18. Is that true? Have they been up there yet? They are up there. Are you showing Hebrews? Okay, good. I'll, I'll, I'll punch you right in the face if you are. Yeah. That's a boy up there. Um, here's the reason why. We want you, the, the passage that we're teaching, I want to just, I want to implore you to bring your Bibles. And we're going we're gonna to start setting up a few Bibles as well. If you forget them, uh, you're going to have Bibles. But on your phone um, or on your iPad, it's okay, or Bible. Um, but on cross-references like Psalm 40, we're going to put it up on the screen because it's just too much work to go back and forth. So just a little commercial there. So Jesus is quoting Psalm, uh, Psalm 46 through 8. Uh, let me contrast those. So Psalm 40 verse six, "In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted." Jesus said, "You have not desired, but you have given me an open ear." Jesus said, "You have prepared a body for me. Burn offering and sin offering you have not required." Jesus said, you, you take no pleasure. So here it is. God is never delighted in mankind's attempts through ritual sacrifice and offerings to appease his wrath. David wrote, you have given me an open ear. And actually, one of the, I think it's NIV, maybe it's King James says, that David says that you have dug an ear for me. And what David is saying there is that you have given me an ear so that I might know your will and do it. David was a man after God's own heart, it says in Scripture, in the sense that he wanted to know and do God's will. Having an open ear is a posture of willing obedience. It's delighting to do the will of God. And, And it's delighting to do the will of God and not receive anything. It's delighting in doing the will of God because you have been received. Because you've received everything in Christ Jesus. (coughs) So let me ask you this morning, Christian, is your desire this morning to do the will of God? Do you think about that? Because as Christians who have been set apart, who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, that is our call. To love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. This summarizes the entire law. It's your desire to do the will of God. Jesus, as I already mentioned, changed the wording a little bit. Instead of uh, saying, uh, you have given me an open ear, Jesus says, you have prepared a body for me. Why? That's what Jesus did, the will of God. That he took on flesh. He became human. Fully God. And fully human. And if there had not been a human body prepared for him, if he had not willingly taken on flesh, <clears throat> there would be no sacrifice, there would be no shedding of blood, For the forgiveness of sins. What this doesn't mean is that God took pleasure in the death of his own son. But that it's the only sacrifice that would satisfy God's justice. God was never satisfied with sacrifices that didn't come from a willing heart of obedience. Listen to a couple of Old Testament accounts of this truth. This is Samuel talking to um, the apostate Saul. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Jeremiah prophesied something similar. There's, there's 20 of these passages that I could have had in here. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. From the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this command I gave them, obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And walk all the way that I command you, that, I may be, that it may be well with you. Obedience of the heart, not ritual sacrifice, is what's pleasing to God. In verses 7 and 8 of Psalm 40, it says, Then I, David, said, Behold, I have come. And the, What it literally means is, is that here I am, Lord. I think the NIV, NIV says that. And David said, Here I am, Lord. Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, o, o, o my God. Your law is written in my heart. Jesus said, Behold, I have come to do your will, as it is written in the scroll of the book. What's the scroll of the book? It's the Old Covenant. It's the Old Testament. The scroll of the book spoke of the coming Messiah who would do the will of the Father that would satisfy or appease his wrath that he would be his sacrifice would be a propitiation it's this revelation that the old testament sacrifices pointed to and jesus didn't simply go through the motions he willfully and joyfully took on flesh he said here i am this was the greatest of joys for our triune god And it reveals the heart of God. Verses 8-10. through When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These were offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. I'll just say it again. I sound like a broken record, but there's no way for you to appease the wrath of a holy God. There's no way for you to clear your conscience by just doing more and doing better. If you're here today and you've not put your full faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you've not turned from your old ways and turned to the cross of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, I'll quote the famous quote, The road to hell is paved with good intentions. In obedience to the Father's will, Jesus took on flesh and offered his own body for the sins of the world. Jesus fulfilled the righteous commands of the law as no human being could ever perfectly obey the will of God. Hebrews 12, we're going to hit that after Easter, tells us that it was the joy set before him. It was for the joy set before Jesus that he endured the cross. The joy that was found in obeying the Father and the joy that was found in purifying himself, excuse me, purifying for himself a people for his own possession. He found joy in obedience, and he found joy in bringing us in to his kingdom. In verse 10, and by that will, Jesus obeying the will of the Father, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And this sanctification here's what's called definitive sanctification. And it means that that you've been set apart. That you are his holy possession. Being sanctified is to be cleansed from the inside out. It's something that has been done to you, not something that has been done by you. If you've been sanctified, your past sins, including the sins of five minutes ago, including the sins of 20 years ago, have been forgiven. The insurmountable record of debt that you owed. I know there's young people that have student loans that they feel like they're never going to get out from under. Well, the record of debt that you and I owed the Father, we could never repay. But by Jesus' finished work on the cross, he has canceled the record of debt that stood against us. It's Colossians two. All of your sacrifice and your trying to do better, try harder, clean up your mouth, clean up your mind, clean up your life will never satisfy the Creator. God doesn't want your outward obedience. He wants your heart. Jesus was obedient in order that we would be set apart for his purposes. Because we have been definitively sanctified or set apart as his beloved children and cleansed from every sin, we obey. We strive to obey. To do his will. And the greater understanding of our our sin... And the greater the understanding of Christ's once and for all sacrifice, then the greater your desire will be to delight in and do the Father's will. As Christians, we don't abstain from sin as some type of sacrifice hoping to gain favor from a holy God. I'll say it again. We abstain from sin to do the will of the Father. Nancy and I have been married for 42 years in June. And there's so many regrets that I have in our marriage. And it's her kindness to me in my sin that leads me to repentance. It's her kindness to me that wants me to love her and treat her gently. Not a have to, but a want to because of her kindness. It's the same way with the gospel. When we look back at the cross, and we see it was God's kindness that set us free from the power and the shame and the, and the uh, penalty of sin. We have the want to. In verses 11 through 18, we're going to look at that briefly. We're going to look at what Jesus has done, what He's doing now, what He will do, and how to live in, that, in the light of that. Verse 11. Every priest stands daily in his service. Think about the Old Testament priests. We've talked about it ad nauseum the last four or five weeks. They stand daily in their service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. The Levitical priest's work was never done, and there was no place or no time for them to sit. In the tabernacle, there was no furniture. There was no chairs, no couch, no place to sit down. And their sacrifices were not sufficient. It could never take away the guilt and penalty of sin. In the same way, your efforts to earn God's favor will not take away the guilt of your sin. You can give more. And you can serve more. And you can pray more. And you can read more. And maybe you should do all of that. I don't know. But the only way to relieve the guilt of your sin is to remember, and not just remember, but to believe the truth of what Jesus' sacrifice accomplished and what he is doing now. What he's done in the past, what he's doing now, and what he promises to do in the future. Verse 12, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. His single sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin never needs repeating. He is now sitting, not sacrificing. And he's sitting at the right hand of God, which is a place of majesty. It's a place of intercession. And he's interceding for you, believer, right now. And he's waiting. Not wringing his hands and wondering when I should come back. He knows exactly when he's coming back. It says in verse 13 that he's waiting from that time, the time of his final sacrifice, and his resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. He's ra- waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool of his feet. And the author's quoting Psalm 110, verse 1 here. What does it mean, waiting until a time when his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet? It means that once and for all, he's going to come and defeat his enemies. He's going to come to judge the living and the dead. And the the triune enemies, if I might, are sin, suffering, and death. If you know Jesus Christ, sin no longer has grip on you. If you know Jesus Christ, you've been forgiven of the guilt and the shame of your sin. Satan, he's on a leash. He can only go as far as God will let him. In death, the final enemy was conquered by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But they will all be perfected. There'll be no more sin. There'll be no more Satan and no more death when he returns. And while we wait for his return, we can have confidence, verse 14, that by for a, for a single offering, he is perfected for all time. You've been perfected. Your conscience has been clean. Those who are being sanctified. I love this because this is the already but not yet. You've been perfected, but you're not yet perfect. The author is saying that you've been perfected, you've been cleansed, you've been forgiven, you've been fully accepted by God because of faith in the shed blood of Jesus, but you're being sanctified progressively. And how does he make us look more like Jesus? How does he um, give us a, a, a clear conscience? It's by the sin of others, mostly. It's by suffering. It's by the enemies that he's going to put away one day. That's how he sanctifies us. Our conscience is being shaped and our lives are being conformed to the image of Christ as a result of the trials and the sin that we encounter. Your own sin, the sin of others. He uses it all to conform us into the image of Christ. Then the author closes this section off by quoting it once again, Jeremiah 31, 31-33. He started this section in chapter 8, verse 7 with Jeremiah 31-33 through 33, and he's going to close this section off by quoting it. And it reminds us that we have been empowered to do the will of God. And that we will continually receive his forgiveness when we mess up. Verse 15, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will, that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Before the law was written on, uh, before the law was written on tablets of stone, but now, if you know Jesus Christ, is written on your hearts. That the law is written on the hearts of the true people of God, which is to say, rather than writing the law on stones and scrolls and exhorting people to internalize it and strive and do your best to obey it, God writes it on our hearts by giving us the Spirit. And the Spirit gives us both the, both the want to and the ability to obey The new covenant brings transformation of the heart and the permanent indwelling of the Spirit so that obedience flows from the inside out. We've been given and sealed with the Holy Spirit that gives us the desire and the power to live in submission to the law of Christ while knowing that we are loved and we're secure when we fall short. I'll say it again. The Spirit of God gives us the want to rather than simply the have to. And then he adds, in verse 17 and 18, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there's forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. You might be caught in the same cycle that I find myself being caught in from time to time. And this cycle is realizing that you can't perfectly live out God's righteous requirements And then you feel guilty for falling short. Then you start trying harder and sacrificing to do better in order to gain acceptance from God. And I want to remind you that you cannot fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. You can't. Jesus did. And because Jesus came and lived the perfect life, You've been baptized, if I might, into his perfect life. That his perfect life has been counted as your perfect life. He came and completed the Father's will. So if you have put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins... His perfect life is counted as your perfect life. His righteousness is your righteousness. We quote quote 2 Corinthians 5.21 all the time around here. That said, he who knew no sin, Jesus, he he who knew no sin, the perfect one, became our sin that we might become the righteousness of Christ. He remembers your sin no more. You've been forgiven. There's no offering required. So believer, you are guilty of sin. I think we live in a like hyper-grace environment times where we say, like, like, you're not guilty, honey. No, you're guilty of every past, present, and future sin. But you need not be mired down by a guilty conscience because God has forgiven you and he remembers your sin no more. And as a result, he has set you apart to be his prized possession. Therefore, strive to sin no more. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for the reality that we were And are guilty of sin. That we inherited at birth a sin nature. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That none is righteous, no, not one. God, I thank you that you gave us the law. To heighten our consciousness. To show us and remind us that there is nothing we can do to appease your holiness. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, that that you came to fulfill the law. That you are the true Israelite. That you are the only one who perfectly fulfilled the law of righteousness. And I thank you that you gave us a way into relationship with you. And it's through faith in your shed blood for the remission of our sin. And I thank you for the beautiful promise that you remember our sin no more. That it's been cast away as far as the east is from the west. That you have canceled the record of death that stood against us. Lord, I pray that you would remind us when we sin this afternoon, tomorrow morning, That you would remind us to run to the cross, to remember our sin, to own it, to confess it, and be reminded that it's been taken care of. It's been forever buried or burnt. So God, help us walk in this newness of life and not in the shame and guilt of the old man. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.